Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex, your host, and today is show 39 and today's guest is Indira Naidu. And uh, for those of you overseas, you might not have heard of Indira before, but in Australia she's a household name. She was uh, the ABC's youngest anchor on uh, the late edition news. She anchored the 7.30 report on the weekends. She is an author author, a journalist, a TV presenter, an activist. During her time at a magazine called Choice, uh, she created something called the Shonky Awards, which is one of my favourite things ever. For any non-Aussies out there, for something to be shonky or dodgy, it means it's like a little bit of a, well, actually it's completely misleading. So it's just like a brown chocolate powder pretending to be a sports drink for kids. For example, if anyone knows what I'm talking about, uh, yeah, it begins with an M. Anyway, um, so these Shonky Awards were published annually and they became this huge thing and Indira is going to talk to us a little bit more about how that all came about because it was a huge risk apparently for Choice Magazine to, to do such a thing. But really it gave light to how much can be hidden in marketing messages and how little truth there is to a lot of the marketing messages out there and to collate the worst of the worst over a year and publish them as an awards list, I think was an absolutely genius way to start getting us thinking for ourselves more, thinking critically, saying that's great that you're saying all this positive stuff about this product, but I'm going to do my own investigating to see if you're telling the truth. I think it's a fundamental skill that we all need to continue to develop so that we don't get the wool pulled over our eyes. Another Australian expression, Plenty of Australiana starting uh, today's show. Now, I'm also going to be talking to her, of course, about her amazing work in getting more people growing food, regardless of the amount of space you have to do it in. The Edible Balcony was a, a, a book that really inspired people to just get that pot or two happening, even if you only have a tiny garden or a kitchen windowsill, everybody can grow food. Uh, and her latest book, uh, released a couple of years ago now already, uh, The Edible City, is an inspiration in in how uh, she tells the story of so many communities coming together, connecting, growing food, and what that's done for the communities that she talks about. It's really gorgeous. They're both great books uh, to gift, and of course, I'm going to put all of the details in the show notes for you guys about how you can connect further with Indira's work and books. But of course, we have a show sponsor who helps us actually put this podcast together for you guys every week. And I'm so grateful and excited to present Emporio Organico as this week's sponsor. Now, you have 20% off the whole store for the next two weeks. And international shipping is also available if you email them your order because they have to calculate the shipping costs of those sorts of orders. But her range and what she curates is is really exceptional. So Kitsa Yaniotis is the founder and she was a lawyer who then through seeing her own son um, 
develop autism, found psychotherapy, found counselling, so she became qualified in those two things, became qualified as a body ecologist practitioner, a GAPS practitioner, and I know GAPS is something that has helped many people out there in terms of uh, healing themselves for the long term, and a mind practitioner as well. Mind's an incredible organisation, M-I-N-N-D, that uh, helps really lift the lid on the epidemic illnesses facing our children today. It is not normal that we have become a westernised world that has one in a hundred kids becoming autistic and mind really helps to do a lot of work on some of the lifestyle choices we can make it not only preconception phase but when we um, have a diagnosis of autism in our family, how much we can do to support our autistic kids, our kids with ADHD, aspects burgers, pyrols, a lot of different challenges facing so many of our kids today. So I definitely uh, recommend if you haven't heard of mind.org before, I'll pop the link to that in the show notes as well because it's an incredible support. So kids are also through learning about just how much beneficial bacteria in the gut can do to impact our health, created the incredible cultured veggies range. She was one of the first to really start talking about the importance of lacto-fermentation and her range, I swear, tastes better than any other cultured food I've ever tasted. It's just delicious. So Emporio Organico was then an extension of needing to put online a lot of the things that she was talking about being beneficial to the many families she was helping through GAPS, but also kind of playing to her love of beautiful things, beautiful, useful things. You know, we talk about the life-changing magic of tidying up and really only keeping things that are useful to you or beautiful to you. And I feel like her store is just packed with really useful or really beautiful or both things. She has given me two pieces of jewellery in my life, one for my 40th and one uh, a few years ago for Christmas, I think it was. And I don't wear jewellery other than my wedding ring and my engagement ring. So for someone to dare to do such a thing is really gutsy move, but she just nails it. And I wear what she's given me a lot because it just, it's so me. So the pastiche jewellery that she ranges, beautiful gifts, uh, really gorgeous homewares, incredible organic cottons, beautiful cookware, the incredible Stolid Technics range is in her shop, stainless lunch boxes, right through to top-of-the-line green beauty, things like Kajar Weiss, huge in LA, folks. You know, there's just some incredible things in her store. Lily Lolo from the UK, the Well People range, which is one of my favourites. I love their mascara. So it's a really great store and uh, a really broad range. So you could be literally buying a stunning necklace for yourself and an incredible probiotic all in the same store. So whatever you're interested in, please do go and take a look. 20% off in the whole store with the Lotox Life code. And Emporio Organico is the name of the business. But as I said, you've got all of the details in the show notes, along with some of my favorite picks from her range. So let's crack on with the show. It's a long chat with Indira today. So 
maybe you're going to want to break it up in two, half today, half tomorrow. But she's a fascinating woman, has so much useful stuff to say, has been through so many incredible experiences in her life and created so much opportunity in her life as well. And I think is someone who we can all be inspired by. And it was just such a delight to to have Indira join me on the show after knowing her for so many years and now having a podcast that is a wonderful vehicle to bring the beautiful work she does to you guys. Enjoy the show. Indira, hello. Hi, how are you, Alex? I'm awesome, thank you. How are you today? Oh, wonderful. I'm really enjoying the sunlight and I can see all my herbs and my plants on my balcony all opening their faces to the sunlight and, and I feel happy when they're happy. Oh, gorgeous. What's growing best for you right now? Uh, well, because we've had just such a hot, wet um, beginning into the year in Sydney, everything's, you know, lush. So the chilies are still flowering. The basil is going crazy. I've got a huge three-metre curry leaf tree that is just ferocious in its growth. And so uh, the unseasonal weather actually has been quite good for most of the things I'm growing. Yeah, it's like a, an extended remix, hey, when you get weather like this in autumn. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Tomato wrap. Yeah, beautiful. (laughs) God. Okay. Uh, I digress completely there. Um, So where shall we start? I would love to start just completely sideways and we'll come back into all the beautiful things we're going to chat about. Um, But obviously you've done so many incredible things in your career and when we're propelled towards great, beautiful, creative things, there's often – some really key idols and inspirations who who guide us whether we know them or whether they're a distant idol or inspiration who can you pick one and share with us who's been an incredible inspiration to you yeah, it's, it, it's always an interesting question because I unusually I know I'm not like most people person that tends to encapsulate all the things I admire so I I get drawn to hundreds of people Mm. for various values or skills or talents or creativities or personalities or whatever I I can just really admire someone because they're the best joke teller I've ever come across and I just love that about them then someone else that they've overcome childhood trauma or or a setback or something's happened in their family and they've overcome that and, and gone on to do the things they love and then other people who are just brilliant tennis players uh, and that's what they do because I really admire that as a skill so it's it's so I've got multiple ones people who are just great writers people who are great interviewers you know um, great artists so it's it's very varied and I think I'm just always attracted to people who demonstrate a creativity with commitment and, and passion and it doesn't really have to be any particular thing I really can quite admire you know just the way someone wears a scarf when I walk down the street and there's a woman who's just tied a scarf perfectly and I think I wish I could do that ah, so, it's a French um, thing <laughs> yeah so it's very diverse yeah what I what I look to and admire and and then I just file those things away and I think in a, in a way create this most you know, my ideal world and, and way of living and being creative and connecting with others and valuing others. It, it sort of is a composite of, of not a person that actually exists, I guess, but there's an idealism there. I love that. And and it's so true. I think there's nothing more beautiful than seeing someone just completely inside their niche of awesome 
being their absolute best and and being completely in flow with what they're doing because it all just fits and they've worked so hard. It's true. You can admire it, whether it's a tennis player, a TV presenter, anybody, really, if the common thread is just some sort of way that people are lit up by what they're doing. I, I completely yeah. get that. Yeah, very true. So, so maybe what I look for is joy, is someone demonstrating a joy in them. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. So, like, it, it's quite hard to have a chat with you, A, because I know you, so I feel like, you know, we would normally just be having a glass of wine and, <laughs> and talking about we all sorts could. of things and we can totally <laughs> do that. I'd love to. But I want to share with the people out there that are listening today some of the amazing things that you've done and, uh, you know, a lot of people will maybe know you from your time on SBS uh, but some people might have tuned in later into your career when you became an author. And it, it's funny when you've had lots of twists and turns. You know, I, I, I'll be giving a workshop chat to 60 cooks of childcare centres, helping rev them up and get rid of the additives. And and then, you know, someone will sort of realise that they used to come to my bar when I was a really well-known bartender. And, you know, you kind of, oh, yeah. no, no, but that's not me anymore. It's just a, a chapter in my life. And I think Naomi Simpson, who's a good friend, says it beautifully when she says you don't have to close chapters, open chapters. You can lead a, a portfolio life. You don't have to commit yourself to being interested in only one thing at a time or or not revisit things that you used to do, which I think is such a relaxing concept to people who, mm. you know, especially in this day and age, we often feel like we have to go all in on one thing and choose and and crush it, so to speak, and all that kind of crazy pressure that people put on themselves Yet chapter living and portfolio living seems to be something that makes a lot of people quite happy. And I wonder whether it wouldn't make more people happy if we realised that we could actually incorporate that principle. Um, and I, I really feel that you have. So childhood, I would love to know, given you are an uber goddess of growing produce these days, was was nature always a thing in your childhood? Was your family a family who grew vegetables, uh, you know, I'd love to sort of see where that started for you. Mm. It, you know, it's so fascinating, isn't it, as we get older and, and we and um, you can look back on things that start making sense in a way that when you were younger you're either not focused there or, or, or busy or your, your interest was somewhere else. But I, I see myself as coming to gardening and nature later in my life. You know, I get asked that question and, and then I go back and realise, actually, it's always been such a priority in a lot of ways, but I've never seen it that way. You know, mm. I've never, I've never realised that um, any moment that I get, you know, I, I have to flee my Mac and the offices and the air conditioning and, you know, the lights and the fluoros, those things have always got to me ever since I was a little child. I, I couldn't wait to – I loved school and I loved learning, but I hated classrooms. I physically did not like the space I was in. And I've never really thought of that, but, um, you know, the, I loved television. I loved television presenting, but I hated being trapped in studios, you know. And, and now it all starts making sense to me. I was trying to do – something that technology and, and urban infrastructure um, would only offer me one way of doing it, you know, whereas for me I sort of think why do you have to have a studio indoors? Why do you have to have a classroom with four walls? You know, why why couldn't 
we have done those things in a, in a different way. So in a way, I guess I'm older and a little more confident to say to myself, hey, if you want to hang out in a garden and then find a way to work and, and learn and be joyful, well, go for, do that, you know, because it's always been something that simmered there, but you've never quite identified it as the frustration with all these other activities you've been part of. Mm, I, I, yeah, that's so interesting. I always, I often describe my time in corporate as literally feeling like I was having an allergic reaction to the office space. I just could not be in the fluor. Everything you just said was just like, ah, it was a horrible memory. And yeah, and and I actually don't think anyone thrives in that environment. No, actually, yeah. long term. And I think no. that you all, we all suffer, and our creativity suffer. And you know, there is there is becoming a change of culture and understanding about how to have creative workspaces um, as as a, compared to the old ones. So it's wonderful to see that change. But part of my growing up was always we largely stayed in smaller country towns or or the outskirts of larger cities. So there was my, both my parents very passionate gardeners. We always had vegetable gardens. But again, as children, it was something that you had to do, you know, that, oh, you know, can you go and dig up some potatoes for dinner? And you'd go, oh, do I have to, mum? <laughs> and um, so you saw it and you connected with it. But it, it was this under duress feeling, and, and which is so tragic now. For me, I just think, oh, God, I wish I'd been more joyful in, in that appreciation. But, you know, the epiphanies happen when they happen. You can't make them happen earlier. So I now realise that there was so much innate knowledge and understanding that I just absorbed through osmosis from my environments and family homes and, and gardens that, that now I put into practice. So I'm just lucky it came to me. You know, I mean, again, a lot of people don't discover this till they're really retired, you know, um, and that's when a lot of people really embrace gardening. Uh, so I'm, I'm lucky in a way that I've, I've been able to do it before I need a Zimmer frame, but um, <laughs> I could have come, I, I could have come to it so much earlier if I think the environments had been different. And I think that, you know, again, because we lived with so much nature, you take it for granted, you'll always have it around you. And in my later life, um, living in really big cities, uh, the disconnection has become so such a contrast because in my childhood it was it was bush and eucalypts and and you know wallabies and possums and Tasmanian you know devils running around in the backyard and things like that. And now I realise as an adult that that was a childhood that actually most Australian because you know we were immigrants to Australia, but most Australian-born kids never get. But because we lived in these rural settings in small country towns. It was a really big part of my life and now I realise how fortunate I was to have an experience that not only most immigrants don't get but most Australians don't get it anymore. Mm. And, you know, something that you talk about in your second book is obviously these incredible communities that are built around these gardens with the Edible City book and something you just said there really kind of made me think, oh, wow, maybe that's why this book was created. And I'd love to hear from from you and just extend the thought around like why we feel that procuring food in nature is something that we're almost under duress, like we have to do it. It's an obligation. Whereas with the Edible City, I feel like you've really created this beautiful message that having 
incredible, gorgeous, natural, seasonal, local produce, especially in cities, is just such a privilege and such a special thing to be a part of a community who draws on those gardens. Can you can you kind of share why, whether any of what I've just said is like purely stab in the dark or whether you, that might have been like something you actually subconsciously wanted to create for people to help people realise how special growing food can be? Well, Alex, what happened with me is that I, um, after covering a lot of international news and realising that there was patterns to the conflicts we were seeing uh, in the you know news I was covering, particularly at SBS, was that there were you know conflicts now that were rather than the way we would describe it as an ethnic conflict. Here, the Tutus, here the Hutsis, they're fighting, and that was would be how we would present it. And then, because I was doing it so long and so consistently, so every day there'd be a minor development in a conflict. So I got to have a very safe front seat to this conflict, but at a distance. So I I was not in harm's way myself. But what I started to see is, oh, um, these tribes got on fine until, oh, this terrible climate effect uh, took away five of the wells. And so then one village then started going to another area to get their water. And then the other villagers would say, no, we don't have enough water. And then I'd see the pattern was emerging that these conflicts were actually being driven. We, we, presented them as ethnic conflicts, but they were conflicts of a shortage of food and water. And I think when that hit me, it just changed the way I was looking at everything that I was reporting on as a journalist, because I realised we were misrepresenting, we were misunderstanding, and we weren't really doing audience justice either because we weren't giving them the tools to understand, well, how can we stop these conflicts? So when I did a little bit more travelling through North Africa and Europe and Asia and America and spent time in communities in a way that you don't normally as a journalist because as a journalist, it is an incredible entree to places. You say, I'm a journalist or I work on television and every door opens for you. It's incredible. Mm. But you tend to mainly mix with people who are very powerful, very important, Um, it's very hard to get access to just everyday people. It's quite unusual. And so I didn't know many everyday people in my life, you know, because I talked to the union leaders, I talked to the boss of that company or that politician or that prime minister. But the average person sitting at home dealing with whatever, I didn't quite understand that that life. And when you go then um, out of the privileged Western culture we're generally in in Australia, it becomes even more um, extraordinary, the um, challenges, because it's these poorer, more climate-threatened areas where most of the conflict's happening. So spending time in those communities, they actually taught me that if we don't address this food and water conflict, and a lot of it is being driven by Western-style companies and their investment or divestment in these areas. Mm. This was just get worse and worse and worse. And, of course, what we're seeing at the moment in Syria and with ISIS, yes, there are some political and and cultural and ethnic issues that are driving that, but a lot of that conflict has been caused by a severe climate change weather event that caused a terrible four or five years ago, forcing a lot of farmers off their lands and into the cities and into the hands of ISIS. Mm. And one of the things, you know, I'm absolutely convinced about, um, and I know I'm this sort of person, if you fill me with a really delicious, lovely meal and a bottle of wine, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not getting aggro with anyone. 
I'm just rolling around having a nice siesta on my couch. And that is a fundamental human nature. When we are well fed, um, we, we're comfortable and we're, you know, but, you know, as people say, the, the famous quote is, you know, we was, we're seven meals away from revolution. And if you don't get seven meals in a row, again, something we don't understand in our very privileged world we live in in Australia, mm. for most of us anyway, um, we can understand the desperation and then all the other stuff that happens. So these poor people don't have farms, don't have food. They're pushed into the cities. ISIS then um, takes them and exploits that. And um, and then we get, you know, a worsening of the, these sorts of crises. So for me, exactly the driver of food and shelter and water. And if you, if you take that away or you put it at risk, of course, get so much upheaval that we're seeing in the world. So it was more just a different way of looking at the world than I was as a mainstream working journalist. And so I've come back into my world with a very different outlook about how we address these these issues. And if you can go back to the fundamentals, giving people a secure home to live under, um, a good nutritious supply of food and, and you're, you're basically going to address most of the problems you're faced with, you know, and it can be done. There's enough food that's produced in the world. It's just um, unfairly distributed. You know, that many communities are fully housed. Um, we don't need to have 120,000 people in Australia every night without um, housing. In Sydney alone, I think we've got something like 40,000 empty houses every night. We do. What's going, it's ridiculous, what's going on isn't with it? That? Mm. So for me, it's not so much that we don't have the solutions, that they're staring you in the face every day, but we just haven't put one and one together. So my journey is just about putting one and one together and the penny dropping for me and then help other communities see that if we all as a community pull together and, you know, pool our resources, we can actually address all these problems at a localised level mm. rather than this idea that this has to be shipped from there and this commission, this a branch of government then deals with this um, regional rural issue. We can actually, if we're empowered, can do it local in a localised way. So these communities who are growing vegetables, in fact, are teaching me how they um, empower themselves, take an ownership of their localised challenges and come up with their own solutions. So it's it's really inspiring to see it and to be able to study it. Absolutely. It's something that's really interesting, isn't it? Us believing it all has to happen from the top down and collecting checks to then go to supermarkets. And whereas often in a lot of the lower socioeconomic areas, and I've actually visited a couple myself over the, the years, you, you see these, you know, old red brick, simple houses, and then you see a huge yard. And I'm in a two bedroom apartment in the middle of Sydney. I, I, I can't even get my head around what it would be like to, to come home to a garden every day. But there's just so much room to grow stuff in so many areas uh, outside of our city centres as well. And that really shocked me and made me think, wow, if this family was taught how to garden and keep chooks, you know, their their food problem would would turn around in, in weeks and then their mental health issues would turn around because they're not eating processed packets and they're back, you know, they're eating produce instead. And, I mean, there's so many things that would stand to benefit from people actually knowing how to grow food wherever there's land. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of us believe the spiel that we're fed through advertising and from the corporates that say, oh, no, we're too busy to cook or we're too busy to garden or, oh, it's something that you should outsource. Why do you want to do that? It's so boring. It's so dull and time consuming. Get someone else to do these dull things so you can have more fun. And <laughs> what I found fascinating about you know, uh, especially when I, I spent time with Choice, the consumer advocacy group, uh, that was a really extraordinary time when I started to uh, pick a lot of those messages that we're fed through popular culture and through corporate culture to control us and make us things things that we don't want to do, is that, um, you know, as I discovered uh, again later in life, cooking is such a joy. I can't imagine anything else I'd rather do. Growing my own food is such a joy, you know. Caring for kids is such a joy. Why do we think these are the horrible that we have to outsource to other people? And you sort of think all we've done is kept the worst bit of our lives, which is the going to the office and going to work and all the fun bits that other people are doing for us. <laughs> so I just really ironic that we've just swallowed this complete drivel. They're the fun things in life. That's what we should be reconnecting with and stopping as much of the office work part of our life because that's just horrible. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's I think I, I did a, a little Instagram tile last year that was instead of thinking of it as a dastardly chore, think of it as an incredible pr- privilege, you know, and just like when we change that mindset, it's really interesting what comes up for people, you know, they bringing curiosity to the kitchen instead of, dread you know and I often talk about if if it's that first chop of an onion that really just makes you think oh god I've got to do dinner for the family then maybe just chop six of them at the start of the week so that that first little hump that normally would make you have a negative thought makes you think actually I've already made a start on dinner so it's not so bad and then you're in there and you start to think about what you actually like to eat and a lot of people have just been fed the idea of what they should be eating and been saturated with this cooking is beneath you message because, of course, that just makes a whole bunch of huge multinationals very wealthy if we all believe that. Yeah. And yet it takes us away from our, what you were saying exactly, which is, you know, at the heart of all of these huge conflicts is often a food and water issue. It takes us away from what some of the most important aspects to human life are and and when we're connected with those then we understand other people's hardship and struggle much more empathetically I'd imagine um, simply because we we can actually feel how important food is because we're connected to it in a much more um, present way. Yeah present is is such a important word Alex uh, when it comes to cooking or when it comes to gardening or looking after your kids it makes you be present and we do, I think, so much of the anxiety and the anxiety issues and illnesses that um, um, are just everyone is is beset with, um, sadly, in, in our modern Western society, is largely driven because we spend too much time in the past and too much time in the future, mm. you know, and that, that, that they are places... You know, you have to occasionally visit, but most of your life should be in the present. And I rarely come across a gardener that isn't a present type of person because they can't be thinking about what happened to that crop of tomatoes a year ago or what's going to happen in two years' time. They have to be right there with it going, okay, 
it's looking a little sad. The leaves are going a bit brown. What is going on with it now, right now? This is what I have to address. And for me, gardening is so good when you do have, um, you know, as everyone does in this this culture, these neurotic running away with, you know, things and where it's all going to go. And what does it mean if, if you know, he didn't call me back, <laughs> not like me. Oh, la, la, la. But people can, it always surprises me how much time people can spend on that bit rather than, well, what about if he does call you then? So, you know, what's going to happen then? Or it's quite fascinating. It's always the what ifs or the what nows or what could have been rather than, well, all you know is I'm with you now. We're having a glass of wine. Can we can we just talk about us? You know, why why is so much of this conversation about something that hasn't even happened? You know, yeah. you don't even know this person. It's quite fascinating how we all can run away with things. And for me, cooking and gardening is um a really and nature has taught me just come back bring it back here here's here's the bug on the plant right now this is what you need to focus on and it's amazing when you focus on the present the neuroses do disappear or become quite lessened and you don't even know what you were fretting about half an hour before yeah it's interesting isn't it i love that phrase um if if you're not going to remember this apparent crisis in five years' time, then stop treating it like one. And I, yeah. just, I think that's so great because it really does make you jump out of your first world problem skin. Oh, oh yeah. I've, um, I've got this friend of mine who's an Olympic warrior. Like if they handed out gold medals <laughs> for worrying, she'd just win every race all the time. You yeah. know? I've never met anyone who dedicates so much of a life to this. And finally one day, because then you try to talk it down off the ledge, you know, and finally one day... I have to admit, I was a little frustrated and I said, right now, if you can tell me one thing that worrying has helped that thing, I'll I'll carry on listening to your worries, you know, for the rest of the time. But if you can't show me one piece of evidence where worrying has actually given you the solution, then that's it. Uh, we're, we're stopping with worrying. We're not talking about it again. And it was funny. She'd ne- never thought way before. She goes, oh, yeah, I guess it never really brings about the solution, does it? And I went, <laughs> no, I've never come across a situation where worrying has actually really helped. If it did, I'd be a great warrior with you. And if I thought that that was going to be the way to solve things, I'd, I'd be racing with you to the finish line. But it never gets anyone anywhere. No, it never does. Now, you just glossed over something I would love to chat about, which is your time with Choice Magazine and uh, and starting yep. the Shonky Awards. And I've shared a few of these on our community page at Low Tox Life a few times, especially Milo getting a Shonky Award, which I just loved this past yeah. year because it is not a nutritious sports drink for children. It is utter no. processed Sugar. garbage. Yeah. So how where did you have the brainchild for the Shonky Awards? When I joined Choice, they were struggling a bit in terms of, you know, finding relevance in this age where people do rely on social media and friendship networks to say, what sort of fridge do you think I should buy? What's this? What's that? And the credibility and the authority of Choice had been challenged by all these online, you know, websites and sites. So when I joined, again, as a journalist, I'd used Choice and and valued it um, um, extremely in terms of the scientific rigour of where how they came up with things, whereas I knew 
being a journalist in the media, when people would say a lot of things, it was really opinion-based. It was like, mm. oh, I just like that. That's yeah. why you should buy that brand of car. Rather than have you ever really test-driven it? Have you looked at the under the hood? You know, whereas that's what choice does. So I was always fascinated about this organisation. So when the opportunity came up um, and they were looking for a new media manager, new head of marketing, just to refashion it for a modern media world. So when I joined, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no one even had websites. It was only people were only starting to have websites then. So it was quite an interesting era to bring a organization that was founded in the 1950s and bring it into this sort of modern way of how do you get authentic information into an environment where people just make up stuff, mm. you know. So We'd always put out the Choice magazine and then we started Choice Online. We noticed that we were losing a lot of um, our members, largely because they were ageing and, and dying, and the younger members weren't joining. Mm. And it was such an, a big opportunity because, you know, when you buy a house and you're looking, you know, to furnish it, you're, you're having your first child, there's so many consumables that you having to buy and they're quite important ones you know the safety of a stroller or a, a seat in a car it's life and death for your little one so people were just relying on word of mouth from a friend and it horrified mm. me mm. because <laughs> uh what would your friend know about what's safe in a stroller really yeah. so when I started just looking back and reading all the research, and that's what I did, I really went back to every Choice magazine from 1951 and read it all. I had a library of it. And um, I realised even more so this is such an extraordinary organisation that we can't afford people to not understand the value of this quality information and how, well, it's it's singular. There is no other organisation in the country that provides such authentic credible, unbiased information. There's no there's no company saying, um, we'll give you this much money if you say our fridge is really great or there's, there's none of that. Again, which is really unusual because as we're finding with more and more media outlets, they just plug something because they're going to get an ad or they're going to get a free product. So when they said, okay, we're going to launch and change our brand of choice from the Consumer Association to Choice, can you organise a media event for that? And I went, no one's going to come. And the, and the <laughs> you know, the people, the CEO said, what do you mean? I said, everyone changes names of organisations all the time. That's not going to make anyone come. We've got to say something that's going to make the media go, really? Wow, we need to be there. And they said, oh, but we've got a new logo and we've got <laughs> this lovely background. Bless. It was so sweet. Again, <laughs> most of the people there were scientists and they come from yeah. quite a different media marketing environment. And I said, let me go away and come up with an idea that will be hooky, will demonstrate the authority and authenticity of the testing and the rigour, package it in a way that the media love um, and also sell the, the relevance, the importance of this organisation being supported and, and drive new membership. So fortunately, because I'd read all this material, I just kept thinking, I'd never heard that that product was terrible. I think I have one of those those mixes or, oh, no, I bought one of those. Oh, no, you know, why didn't I know any of this? And I was even horrified that as a journalist who thought I was well-informed, I didn't know any of this stuff. Mm. So I thought, why can't we just 
simply, again, for rushed people in busy lives, put together a list of the worst things that we came across that year. They were all in our magazines every month, but most people, again, who are not members would not have read it. Let's just put them all together in one little list, top 10, the top 10 anything, and they love it when you tell them that things are bad, you know. Mm, things are shonky. Of and I just yeah. wrote that word down. And, it, you know, and then I thought, great, you've already done all the research, we've got the 10 products there's, this is such an easy thing to sell. But I didn't realise internally in the organisation they were horrified because were they? they said, oh, we don't want to be an organisation that is just seen as attacking. There are a lot of great products out there. Oh. I went, I, yeah, I know they are, <laughs> but the media aren't going to want a top ten list of the best products in the world yeah. necessarily in this in this context, yeah, of course. But they want to, when you say, oh, look, this is terrible but you think this is a great drink, it's great. They'll go to that, read about it, and then you'll tell them this is actually what you should be drinking, not not this. Mm. So it's a way to get them in, but you're still going to give them the information about making good consumer choices. Once so they're subscribers, the, of course. Exactly. Yeah. So that was the biggest hurdle. It was the internal culture of the organisation that had been reluctant to actually go out there. And especially the, the year we did the first Chonkies, we um, criticised Apple for its iPod that you couldn't repair. So mm. they made it extremely di difficult where you had to sell, send your – package it yourself, send it back to some, you know, company in China or America, I don't know. So they made it so difficult that this problem that uh, this particular range of iPods are all having cracked screens or something, there was some fault. And um, we found that this was really not fair, didn't meet any of the, the warranty expectations of the consumer. So that ended up becoming our top shonky product and then – you know, a whole lot of other crazy ones. You know, we found a gin and tonic that you could just buy a mixed gin and oh, yeah, tonic in yeah. the bottle that didn't have any gin in it. No. Um, it, it was <laughs> vodka and tonic, which was bizarre, um, but it said it was gin and tonic. And right. we discovered that vodka is slightly cheaper than, than gin, so it was a way for the company to sell it but not actually give you what it was saying. So it was a, a complete breach of ACCC. But hilarious that someone would go to that extent, actually just not put any gin in the actual product. So, And there were some hilarious ones like laundry balls, which is still sadly a fad, which is a miracle magnetic ball that you don't have to use washing powder. You just throw these balls in with your wash and oh. they suck the dirt into them. Never worked. Your clothes ended up just as dirty as before you did the wash. They were no cleaner than washing your clothes in water, yeah. we found. So, um, again, a complete dud, but people paying lots of good money for something that didn't deliver what it promised. So uh, it ended up becoming especially that Roy and HG to host the awards. And this is choice at the time, and this is going back I think 2006 it was, so 10, 11 years ago. Choice would be lucky if they got a little story on the current affair once every six months. That particular list, how it was packaged, shonky is such an Australian term, you it know, is, for a dodgy it? product. Yeah. Having Roy and HG, who are just brilliant, you know, satirists, who just had all the media lapping it up. We had every network there, every radio station. I ended up doing about, in one day, which I don't even know if it's physically possible anymore to do it but I had two phones and I did something like in one day right and from New Zealand at night time so I kept going I think over 24 hours I think I must have done something like 300 interviews oh my um, god it was ridiculous wow. and what it did is it rejuvenated the because again the media kept saying oh you're going to be sued for this 
And I said, oh, no, no, because this has all been, you know, uh, checked. Yes, it's defamatory, a lot of what we're saying, but we've checked it and it's true and, and truth is a defence. Mm. And they realise that only a scientific body and a, and a research organisation like Choice would ever go out and say something that was defamatory against any of these products because we could back it up with evidence, whereas most other people can't back it up with evidence because they don't know, whereas we could say, look, we can show you, see, when this little girl used this, you know, dog lead, it snaps about and hit her eye and injured her in her eye and, and we did the tests. These ones worked, these ones didn't. That's why you need to take this one off the market. So it was very exciting to to see that it had huge, huge impact and we got a lot of dodgy products removed off the shelves, dangerous products as well. Mm. And it rejuvenated the way that people, I think, saw the important role of choice in the, in the society. So, it, yeah, it's been really exciting that even since I've moved on from the organisation, the Shonkies um, have continued to, to grow. It's become one of the big media, you know, sort of events for them every year. And um, it's really driven lots of new members to the organisation because of the coverage that those awards get. So, um, yeah, it was it was just really good that, you know, the, the information and the quality was always there. So I didn't really have to do much more than just brand it in a way. Mm, interesting. And, no, it really was just begging to come out. Basically, as you said, it's the content that was there. It just needed to come out in a way that would create noise and and what I feel is super important in the whole exercise is hopefully the encouragement to awaken people's critical thinking because that's a there's a huge issue at the moment in so many areas, so many societies with critical thinking. I, I was reading about uh, it's a tangent, but it's a tangent that will make sense. Um, the incredible psychologist, the woman who's working in northern Pakistan, de-radicalizing uh, young children who have been brought up to be radicals. And uh, and when they do the psychological tests on them, they fall in the bottom five percentile band of having uh, critical thinking and question-asking skills. And, uh, uh, you know, you see it in a lot of political landscapes at the moment that that sense that people are brainwashed into just believing things don't look past a newspaper headline to actually read a story just take that and make their truths and uh and it's it's quite a dangerous thing to not be critical thinkers for me it's something i value as as an extremely important part of of um freedom to be able to ask questions and and think critically and i think in the consumer environment um, with uh, products, you know, in, in Low Tux Life, we talk a lot about food, packaging and products and personal care and cleaning products and things like that. To give people the gift of critical thinking and being able to ask the questions that help them actually choose products and spend their money in a way that not only benefits people and planet, which is one of our core values as a business, but also means that they're not wasting cash on something that just plain mm. doesn't work. Do yep. you feel like how do you feel we can exercise that critical thinking muscle more in society? What What are some of the steps? Because a lot of people just go, oh, okay, great. It's almost like busyness has made us have to not think critically in a way or, you know, have we been led to not think critically because that suits some people? I think the key, Alex, is education, which mm. is why I'm such a passionate believer in putting whatever money needs to be thrown at education to give everyone access to really, really good critical 
thinking style education. So I'm, I'm always concerned when I see correlations between low voter turnout at various elections, whether it's Brexit or America, and the people who haven't turned out with a more poorly educated sector of the community. Mm. Um, education is always a, a, a connector and a, an indicator of nearly everything from illnesses and, and people's, you know, health and understanding of what effects alcohol or, or cigarettes have and all that sort of stuff. It all comes back to education. So I, th- I think that we have... You know, in Australia, I'm I'm very concerned because I've seen education being dismantled and that quality and only people who can afford good education get it and everyone else just gets whatever the, the lowest common sort of everyday variety. For reunion recently, um, for one of the many schools I went through during my <laughs> life, but it was fascinating because I realised that even though all those people in, in that three years I left that to school, went on and did such diversity of jobs and careers. I mean, I can't tell you, uh, not one of us in that group of 20, 25 were doing the same job as someone else in the in the group of 25, which I thought was quite interesting in itself. But everyone had a commonality of this critical thinking you're talking about. Mm. So whether they were a fitter or turner, whether they were a, a you know university lecturer, a you know stay-at-home parent the conversations we were all having were very similar in the sense of they were questioning and they were wanting to know more uh, how can I get more information no one had this this sense of I, th- I think that's rubbish you know th- there wasn't that that general attitude and I think that even when you've spent a lot of time in an area and you're pretty well informed I think that the challenge is to still stay as open as you can mm. because you could receive information that could change your position. And I think it's important to always keep that in mind that, yes, I'm very adamant that this is the reason this thing is happening, but if I can be given some new information that can answer, you know, tick all these, these, these tests, I'm open to varying my opinion. And I think that why we're being challenged at the moment with climate change and the the deniers and the people is because people form a position not based again on they don't understand how you find real evidence and and then how you make a a critical decision and then they stay wedded in them Mm. so that even when they are faced with unswerving new evidence they will not budge because I don't know why because do you think um, it's shame pride I think it's always, uh, because I spend so much time now communicating, mm. but to a wide variety of groups. So yeah, I will absolutely. spend, you know, I, I was, you know, I spent time with um, a group of people yesterday that I was even amazed I'd been invited into this heartland and it was News Corp. And oh, wow. it's a global news organisation that runs a lot of, mastheads uh, for the you know the Murdoch company mm. and a lot of people would argue putting out information and, and disinformation particularly in the area you know that, that we're passionate about environment and and climate and it, it was interesting to go into that environment because they have their own internal environment group called One Degree who are totally committed to a company that is carbon neutral to changing all these things 
but the editorial of the newspapers and the magazines are pushing some other line. So the dichotomy there was mm. quite, I find that really extraordinary. But, you know, as I said, there were people who have been invited to talk to this group who would say, oh, I'm not talking to that group. How, you know, look at the look at the rubbish that blah, blah, blah is doing. And um, I've really tried to become a person who, if there's an opportunity, someone welcomes you and says, we want to hear what you have to say, to take that offer up because you never know who's going to be in the audience and who may something you say will open them or make them question something that they believed before, which is why I find gardening such a powerful vehicle because it's so non-threatening. Yeah, you know, I was just about can, to say, what a great little sort of segue into yeah. some, some things that are more confronting because exactly. it's just such a peaceful way to begin. Yeah, it is. And, and and if people aren't ready yet to go the whole journey, that's fine because I find once you just start growing a pot of herbs on your windowsill, if that's all you ever do and everything about your life stays exactly the same, every other idea and opinion you have, I know there is an extraordinary transformation that's going to happen for you at some stage because to care for something outside of yourself, whether it's a pet or a child or even a pot plant, is part of the beginning of a journey of looking at the world through an outside you know view rather than what what's in it for me what am I going to get out of this you know which is part of the attitude that's got us into the problem we're, we're in in the planet so so for me you know going into that group yesterday and they're very powerful influential 50 or 60 magazine and newspaper editors wow. around the country and and the area and all open, really open to the ideas. Obviously, some were a little. I could tell, you know, it was a it was a more sceptical audience. It took I could tell it took maybe ten minutes into my rave before they went hmm? right. I'm, I'm starting to understand this could be a way to go, but um, you know, when you've got hardcore people who are not only uh, in terms of their critical thinking, but just in the way their everyday life is, which is. Oh, you know, like a lot of us, you, I've got to rush to catch the train. Oh, I'm stuck in traffic. Oh, I'm this. And then it started raining. My umbrella's broken. And then I lost my heel on my shoe. And oh, my God, I've got to grab something now from the supermarket. Life is uh, extraordinarily hectic. And that plays to the interests of, of anyone that doesn't want you to be critically thinking because you don't have time. It takes time. You know, mm, I've, it you does. Know, when people say, oh, I, I, you know, I've got this schedule and, and you know, I, I hate it when I have one of those days, I've got one tomorrow where every half hour is literally scheduled. Mm. Um, and I know I'm going to be very lucky if I come up with any good idea in that day because it's so scheduled. Yes. And any idea that I think um, that I think is any good that might may end up going somewhere, maybe not, tends to be where I allow myself to be in this daydream space, you know, where I just sit on the balcony and just look at a plant or, you know, look at a little bug crawling on something. And then I find myself disconnecting and opening up and and then without even realising it, I'll go and make a cup of tea and this idea pops into my head. I don't know where it's come from. I don't know what brought it about, but I know the state I allowed myself to be in for it to happen. And that state is never rushing around in traffic. You know, all that does is just bring out a whole lot of anger and angst and it's absolutely counterproductive to creativity and, and critical thinking. So if you can set out and, you know, why meditation is good, anything that allows you to stop is a great beginning step. So I think critical thinking and allowing yourself to explore, you know, rather than think I have to do it like this because that's the way I've always done it. Well, why? 
why can't you do it another way? What what other way could there be of doing it? And just because you don't know anyone who does it that way doesn't mean people aren't doing it that way somewhere. Try to find those those people and and you know pick their brains and things. So yeah, it's you know I th- I think it's about um, I love learning and I mean I've always loved learning, but it's never this sort of I've never seen learning as oh you have to pass this test and then get this qualification and get this job and then get a career. That's not learning to me. That's jumping hurdles and passing tests. Yeah, it's following a societal checklist. Mm. And I think that that's where we have got stuck in terms of our education and our critical thinking. We just see these things as goals and tests and achievements, whereas learning is is so organic and, and, and can't be, you know, sort of put in any sort of boxes. Yeah, give, you know, give more people time to just, you know, I just love this morning, I was watering the garden and, and I just got completely wet. The hose was sort of going crazy and <laughs> there was mud everywhere and my feet got wet. But the sensation of sense stimulated, which again, you wouldn't expect to have in your average day, because you'd be wearing socks and shoes and stockings and high heels, um, set me off on a very different beginning to my day. Being stimulated by what my feet were feeling from the cold water and the sun on my face. And it just meant that I just went into a completely different mode rather than that hang up laces and, you know, strapping yourself in and, and bracing yourself from to being attacked by something. It was this completely opposite, like just roll around in the dirt sort of day, you know. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Like it, it just sort of highlights for me how many of our days tend to be more of the brace yourself variety. Yeah. We've really got to figure out how to, how to not make that that way and I think something you just said there with just creating pockets of time where you know there's that space and there's a feeling of spaciousness and not having to be anywhere is just so important you know something I find realistic for myself is to exit stage left for half an hour every single day to just chill and do absolutely nothing other than you know look at a book on a shelf if that tickles my fancy or grab a notepad and a cup of tea and see what I write and what comes out and it's it's there that you find creativity absolutely every time and for anyone who's interested in that we mm. actually explored that a few shows ago with Dr Fiona Kerr when we were talking about the uh, the fact that you can actually heal yourself from being a procrastinator but there's some really cool stuff she talks about with the brain needing space rather than continuing to fill it up it's actually a greater service that we can do to empty it out so that we see what it actually creates instead of what we feed it. And mm. and in there somewhere as well is speaking to awakening our critical thinking, our desire to ask questions, to figure out how and why something deserves our time or money um, towards it if it's something that's on the table as something that we might be buying. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Now, watering the garden this morning, feet getting wet, <laughs> back to the garden, the edible balcony, was it Was it a key conversation that you had where you had a thriving inner city garden for a while and you had a book idea or did someone give you the idea or how did it actually come about that you you started to to uh, give birth to this as, as, a, as the new chapter? Yeah, I think this is the other lovely thing too that I've tried to let go of a lot more than, you know, when I was a lot more the, that really anxious driven type focus that I I had I mean and I'm I'm still pretty focused but 
I'm, I'm much more confident just to let things wash mm. and see what will happen and just trust that. And, and really that's where the Edible Balcony came from. So I was lucky enough to do some climate change training with a former US Vice President, Al oh, Gore, yeah. and spent quite a bit of time in communities. As part of my training, you, you go and visit um, some coal miners in the Hunter Valley, you know, scientists at BHP and just, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a Catholic, you know, a church group. And they were all struggling with various aspects of climate change and then trying to see, well, what are the commonalities? How can we work together? And it was probably my f- first experience of really understanding that rather than competitiveness, cooperation and, and collegiateness is what's going to solve our problems. And I found it quite confronting because I would be sent into environments where people, there'd be the, you know, the angry community hall meeting where you'd have the sceptic shouting at you and I'd go, whoa, how are we going to pass <laughs> this? And How are you going to connect with people when you've got all this angst and aggression and fear being fed? And I didn't have any of the solutions. I was sort of thinking, well, Al Gore's trying to do it and he's struggling and they're attacking him. So I came back to my Potts Point apartment and my very bare balcony. It was like how most balconies people have look. Um, Tiles and concrete, grey, it's so uninspiring. Maybe a little barbecue. Yeah, I don't think we even had a barbecue then. It was literally a, a neglected. We never even really went out there. Maybe to dry the clothes. That was about all it did. And I was standing there looking at all these people. You know, we've got the highest point of population density in Australia in Potts Point, 38,000 people. I know, 12,000 people per square kilometre. And I was just looking at all these people and thinking, where where does our food come from? Where does our waste go to? And I'd never really thought of it that way before and realised I and my community were the real problem here. Mm. You know, we were these excessive consumers and we did nothing to deal with any of the problems our consumerism waste uh, created. Well, that's so true, isn't it? Because, you know, yeah. Al Gore's TED Talk was one of the biggest, most powerful shifts for me in terms of starting to take an interest in climate change. Yeah. But what I find and found was that the hugest issue was that we think the problem is polar ice caps. That's not the problem. The problem mm. is at a much more basic everyday level that all of us are a part of. Yeah, and when absolutely. you help people join those dots and realise there is just an incredible amount that we can do with a very small shift at a time. Yeah. And what happened, you know, so I was looking at all these people, looking at all these apartments, and um, I was doing some shopping later at a farmer's market. And I went to the market and um, this, again, had happened hundreds of times but never quite with this um, state of mind. And one of the storeholders handed me a beautiful ripe cherry tomato that um, he had grown himself to taste. So I said thanks, popped into my mouth and just kept on shopping with my shopping bag. And I bit into it and suddenly the flavour just exploded in my mouth and it was so juicy and so sweet and the skin was so crisp. It actually quite blew me away 
I don't think I'd tasted a tomato like that, maybe not since I was a kid. So I, you know, and I tell the story in the Edible Balcony book, I race back to him and I said, hey, what is this tomato? How did it grow? Well, who grew it? And he goes, oh, you know, I grew it. It's an heirloom variety. We don't see them because they don't transport and store very well. So the supermarkets don't grow them. And um, I have to really sell them as soon as I pick them because they um, get very, um, they don't store well. And I just said, oh, well, let me have a bag. I'll, I'll, you know, I really love these tomatoes. It's amazing. And so he starts giving me a bag of the tomatoes. And I said, so how can I get more tomatoes like this? And he said, well, you can keep coming back to my stool, obviously. But he said, you can save some of the seeds in the tomato, pop them in a pot of soil and grow your own. And, of course, I knew that, but it was just this extraordinary concept. I could grow something that tastes this delicious myself. And I went home and I made a pasta sauce out of those tomatoes and I saved some of the seeds and went online and learned how to save them and wash them out and put them on some serviette paper, paper towel. And I looked at the seeds and I just thought, wow. Could I do this? So I looked at my balcony and I again did the, the minimum research and found I'm completely north facing, six to seven hours of sun, sun, sunlight What that tomatoes love. I have a tap. I have a drain. There really isn't anything stopping me putting these seeds in a pot. So that's what I did. I um, put the seeds in some, you know, seed mixing, um, raising mix, you know, waited till they sprouted, which thrilled me. I didn't even think that would happen. And then I transferred them into some pots and started growing tomatoes. And really that was the, the, the epiphany for me was that tomato that I tasted. And it was the taste that I wanted to have again. Mm. And I think that a lot of people underestimate how far you'll go for, for a great taste. You know, when something tastes really good, there's really not, not much else that can be a bigger motivator than that, especially for me. And one thing led to another. Before I knew it, I was growing 43 different herbs and vegetables. I had a huge tomato crop. And in my first year, again, as not a, a professional gardener, I grew, I think, 70 kilos of produce in that first year. And it blew me away because I really, honestly, even intellectually understanding all these issues, I didn't think I could physically do any of this. I didn't think I had the patience. I didn't think I had the skills. Again, so much of the culture tells us why do that when there are people to do it for you. Mm. But again, the transformation that happened and the taste of everything, I started writing a blog called Saucy Onion about what I People from around the world would start commenting and saying, oh, I'm growing some a little pot of something on my terrace. And I'd go, are you? I thought I was the only nutty person doing this because no one else I saw in Potts Point or in my building was doing this. So I really thought I was alone. And then I saw that there was this sort of disparate community spread around the world. And the more I wrote and the more I understood how to do it and learnt, you know, you have failures, you have successes, I realised there was something here. And the stories were fascinating so many of my friends who thought I'd completely flipped out. I was just about to say, how did the, yeah, the husband we, and friends go with your newfound? Because we live above a great supermarket. Mm. So they didn't understand why would you spend three months when you could buy one just like that right now, you know. And the cost, and this is the other thing that we, we I've had a completely different understanding of, I could spend 10 cents or 20 cents buying an eggplant, but why would you spend three months that could cost you all this time and fertilizer and water? Why would you do that? Understand that that cost of that eggplant is not representing the true cost, that that farmer or grower isn't getting that full cost. 
or herself, that all the externalities of that growth, the pesticides, the pollution, the water costs to the cost of that eggplant, you know, that is what the community is having to pick up separately. And if you consideration, it would cost as much as my eggplants cost, which is probably $2 an eggplant, you know. And so I started again, even though I had been a journalist, a consumer advocate, it was teaching me another level of consumerism I'd never really thought of before. And that blog was an amazing night where um, I, this, I joined the slow food movement again from growing and I understood the value of slow food. And I was invited to an event that, again, was a pivotal moment in this um, journey to getting the first book out. And I didn't know exactly what, all I knew was um, going to be a dinner for Carlo Petrini, who was the slow food founder. Mm -hmm. And that's all I knew. And we went to this, you know, very dark street in Chippendale and there was a man with a clipboard and then a button was pressed and a code. And I went up into a lift and thinking, where the hell am I? Mm. (laughs) Is this legitimate, this invitation? You know, (laughs) I actually felt quite nervous because I was on my own. And the doors opened and there was the most glorious apartment that was looking back on the city from Chippendale. And it was dark and dimly lit and I couldn't quite make out faces. Kylie Kwong, really? Oh, and then I saw Margaret Fulton. Oh, wow. Beer, Stephanie Alexander. And it was just, what the hell is this? Why am I here? You know? Yeah. And um, Julie Gibbs, who at the time was the publishing head of Penguin Books. Super talented lady. Super talented, amazing, amazing, beautiful woman, has become a wonderful friend. She just happened to be in the group too and she came up to me and the week before I'd been a contestant on Celebrity MasterChef very unsuccessfully and really, um, <laughs> you know, did everything I could but but cry because I was so Aww. stressed and exhausted by the whole experience. I don't know how but those people do those shows. I don't honestly. know how to do it. It's really quite stressful. <laughs> yeah. And Julie came up to me saying, oh, darling, you Chef, I had no idea you liked cooking and we got chatting and I was seated next to her during dinner and instead of um, bringing a bouquet of flowers for Carlo and I knew I only have very broken Italian and he doesn't have a lot of English and I knew it was going to be hard to have a conversation with him about all the things I wanted to talk to him about. So I thought instead of a bouquet or or a bottle of wine, I'll bring him a bouquet of vegetables from my balcony and it was this beautiful bunch and everything fortunately at the time was just so fresh and crisp. I had big, huge, leafy stalks of silver beet and and rainbow chard and rosemary and um, eggplants and tomatoes and stuff. And I'd fashioned it into this lovely little basket of little goodies. And I gave it to him. And my other great friend, David Pryor, who was working with Carlo at the time, translated and explained. And everyone was so shocked on the table. These all came balcony in her apartment and everyone went really (laughs) the centerpiece for the dining table and it was just one of those nights where everyone around the table was all my inspirations and and just these extraordinary growers and cooks and farmers and it was really one of the great nights of my life and Julie could see you know what you know and I was telling her that my passion and told her about my blog and I said Julia I really think there's a book in this and she gave me her card and said, give me a call, okay? And that happens all the oh, time. Oh, I just got so gooseies. And you go, yeah, that's so lovely, but of course this <laughs> is not going to lead to anything. Yeah. So I went home and I wrote this three-page submission and 
contacted Julie. She remembered me. She, you know, we made an appointment to meet. And I'm going, this is weird. We had this meeting and I, I, I sent her submission and we had a meeting and I was just thinking she was going to have, you know, it's going to be one of those meetings. Look, lovely idea and in, in different environments when we had more funding. <laughs> yes, they entire, you know, that's yeah. what usually happens. Let's have and lunch said, next month. Yeah. <laughs> she said, here's the contract. I went, what? Wow. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I have never received a submission of three pages. Usually it's a scroll on the back of a serviette. Really? <laughs> so I so I can tell you're very committed to this. You've given me plot outlines. Da, 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 da. And I went, oh, right, you think that's unusual? Okay. She goes, when can you start? And I said, look, it's an unusual idea because I know I booked a months, but I want to have a completely immersive, I really grow everything and photograph it weekly and cook weekly and do it slowly over a whole year. Mm. She goes, oh, no one no one does the, these sorts of books. And I said, oh, but what about all those books you do with Maggie and, and blah, 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 and Stephanie and blah? She goes, oh, no, we just shoot that over a couple of weeks. That's how people do these. It's too expensive otherwise. Wow. Oh. And I went, yeah, I suppose so. And obviously now I understand how nutty my idea was never done it I was so inexperienced I was just so naive and fortunately Julie just gave me the creative air to do it she knew how tough it was going to be with the photographer and the stylist and the props cook it and we did it all in the apartment and if it wasn't ready the bugs got it that was a blank page in the book you know? wow. and so I didn't realize how stressful it was going to be but then how organic it was going to be it, you know I talk about the things that didn't work the things that grew and fortunately most things grew but that's really how how it happened and then sometimes things don't grow and I think it's really important for people to know that and feel that yeah you know like so often people are sort of basically following or or trying to achieve what is a blatant lie of perfection um, whoever they're following, whether it's a fad diet, whether it's, you know, the, like an amazing garden, not every crop is going to work. So I think that's actually a really beautiful part of, of what ended up transpiring is that real element. Yeah, mm. it, it was very real. Mm. It was very real. And, yeah, and I'm very lucky that I was given that opportunity because I would never do that that way again to be completely a novice at this I didn't know if it, I was even going to be to grow anything let alone cook it so yeah I, again just to jump in without knowing a lot but surround yourself by a lot of professionals who do is the best way to do a lot of things I think oh absolutely say yes and figure it out later definitely yeah, yeah. and now it seems that gardening and your passion for working with homeless people and television have all come together again in a, in a new way because you're going to be on Gardening Australia. Yes, very exciting. Um, mm. a, you know, for any gardener, Gardening Australia is the Bible and I've, you know, been a huge devotee of the show. So to be asked to come on and share some of my urban garden stories and the communities I've met um, during my travels over the last five or six years and do some stories uh, was so exciting. So I've been filming for most of 2017 and the first story uh, goes to air this week and then over the next three months. So we can, we've been able to feature the new garden that we're building for the new Wayside Chapel in Bonda. 
Oh, amazing. Um, door, which is really beautiful. And it's a slightly different version. The one in Potts Point is on the rooftop, but our garden in Bondi is in a courtyard uh, with a different set of challenges. It's much shadier. We're surrounded by suburban gardens and gardeners and possums and a whole lot of other things that we didn't have the challenge of on the roof. So it's, it was lovely to feature our horticulturist, John Kingston, and, and how he's addressed those challenges. And then just again to showcase all the different ways gardens and urban gardens can help communities. You know, we do a story on the wetlands in Sydney Park and how that's rehabilitated and remediated a, a desolate what was originally a landfill dump, and that is stunning. If your listeners haven't been to Sydney Park, you have to get there. It was just glorious. You'd never believe you're in the middle of the city. It's just acres and acres of beautiful and reeds and fish, and it's just extraordinary. So I love doing that story. Another beautiful garden that was built at a cancer hospital here in Darlinghurst for people who are going through cancer treatment. And it was a reflection garden that has lots of fountains and beautiful dappled light through trees and understands sculpture and colours and, and how you can calm people when they're going through such a stressful time in their lives. So, yeah, that's really exciting. And then later on the year in June, a series that I shot last year on homelessness for SBS goes to where, and that I think is going to be fingers crossed, a real game changer because I don't know why they agreed to, but they did, to live rough on the streets of Melbourne with no money, no phone, no ID. Mm. And the only help and friends they have are other homeless people to show them where to get cardboard to sleep at night, where they're going to be safe and not going to be assaulted by someone under a bridge or where to get a good meal from a, a soup kitchen. And it's shot like a reality show. So we follow them 24 hours for those two weeks. And I can tell you it is pretty harrowing stuff mm. and the transformations that these five participants go through is is pretty eye-opening too I think because we never really think that uh, of ourselves as ever being in the position to maybe be homeless but most people who are homeless in Australia 120,000 a night never thought they'd be homeless either it's one thing that you know, whether or not you've got an addiction or a mental health issue, a marriage breakdown, can't afford the mortgage, one thing can very quickly lead to another. So uh, I'm very excited that SBS are doing that show and, and that is in the end of June. Amazing. I think I can't wait to see that. I'm really, really excited that that was something that got taken up by SBS because it's an important story to tell. Thank you so much for this incredible chat. We've twisted, we've turned, but so has your career. So that just was always <laughs> going to happen. Shall we set a listener challenge? I mean, growing produce is just such a beautiful thing for all of us to do. And and it's often like that first chop of the onion with getting dinner started, you know, that first pot that you put something in and see little seedlings come up is often going to be a turning point towards probably one of your greatest addictions in life. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I think it would be really good for us to set a bit of a, a challenge and maybe people could share pictures of what they're growing. What do you reckon? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, in fact, you know, the challenge even starts a little bit even before, before that. And I think that one of the really come across and it's made me think a lot about how we – most people end up doing things they don't really enjoy doing. How does that happen? And one of the things I rarely come across is an unhappy gardener. Mm, so true. And, I, so and true. I find that, yeah, and I find that really fascinating that you can't really say that about nearly any other professional industry, you know. And I wonder, well, what is it about gardening then that you end up just 
being joyful. And so for me, one of the challenges, I mean, hopefully it may be planting a seed, help people find their joy, you know, is I think such an important challenge. And for me, one of the things I'd like to um, ask people to do down you know five things you know over a course of the week five things every day that gave them joy you know whether it was you know like at the moment it's play um recess time at the girls school down the road and I can hear all the girls laughing yeah and I love the sound of school girls laughing it's just the (laughs) most joyous sound and you know they're just having the time of their lives and you know, they're just so in the moment and I think it's just such an infectious sound when you hear sort of the lilt of that laughter coming through. So that would be one of the things I'd write down, of a joyful moment. Maybe if we could put out the challenge, just write down those five things that gave you joy today and then to the next day could be the same five things. It could be a different thing, maybe trying to plant that seed, seeing it germinate at the end of your first work, which is a really joyful thing to see. But I think you'll be surprised that things truly give you joy and the things that you enjoy they're, they're often not quite the same thing so try to find the real things that that give yeah I like that challenge because I bet people are going to then connect more with what brings them joy and then once you actually know what that is you'd be more inclined to seek it out right or notice it even yeah in a busy day exactly that's what I think I, I really do I think that we just don't listen to that that little whisper in our head that's saying, I actually really like doing that thing. No, 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 you can't do it. No, no, no. That's why we pay that person to do it, you know. And I think there's always this little battle in our heads of being reluctant to to actually admit that thing that gives us joy. Um, and then once you, you start to understand it and identify it, this has happened to me, you are drawn more to those things, mm. more to those people, more, more to those ideas or, or whatever it might be. And it also helps you just be grateful. And I think that the thing that leads to being present, being happy, being joyful is gratitude for things. And sometimes you can be so focused on the things that aren't going the way you want it to go that you can uh, overlook the things that are really going well, you know, and that you're really enjoying and you're really thankful for. And just to stop, which is what saying grace before a meal was always about, it was just a moment to pause and just go, oh, we are really grateful for this because, you know, people around the world don't all have a a meal to sit down to. They don't have a roof over their heads, a beautiful family sitting around with us. They are good things to acknowledge and and just be grateful for. So um, I think that you can almost address half your problems in your life by understanding the things that truly give you joy and then being grateful that you can have those things. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for this chat today. I've absolutely loved it uh, and I can't wait to see people's lists. Please hashtag LotoxLife or tag Indira or myself on Instagram if you want to share yours because it's always interesting to see what other people uh, find joy in because quite often that will give you ideas and think, actually, I love that and I haven't done that in years. And so you might seek out a few things that you've been neglecting. So to that point, I shall bid you a beautiful day and uh, we'll speak soon. Thanks so much, Alex. It's, it's been such a pleasure. And sorry I've rambled on. I just I looked at the time. I know. Time. I just I looked no at the idea. time as well. I thought, God, oh, people no. are going to be on their fourth cup of tea. Well, thank you for not falling <laughs> asleep. That's all I can say. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Have a great day. You too.
Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.